and brings a, a conviction, but also a convincing that his word is so true, and it's alive and it's active in, in that it, it is what it is. You know, God's word sets people free and delivers people if we receive it and apply it to our lives. So uh, I love the book of James. It's a real practical book. It's, uh, it's about real people who are dealing with real things and real issues, uh, kind of like us today, how we are real people dealing with real things and real issues. And how in this book, you know, there was deliverance because they applied the word of God to their lives. And so in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 10, let, let me give just a little background. James is, he's continuing to address the problem of people of God living double lives. They, they were living according to or trying to live according to God's word, but also living according to the world. It's fascinating because in James we read how James, he, you know, the, the, these folks, they were quarreling. They were fighting. They were fighting. This, I mean, fighting in the church, you know. And James is addressing this issue. He's, he's addressing folks who, who uh, were causing problems, you know, people who were, were quarreling with one another. Uh, you know, he, he addressed the issue of, of folks who were involved in murder. You know, Christians, can you imagine Christians? Of course we can, because we are all sinners saved by grace. But these Christians, were, they were murdering people. There was a, adultery happening in the church. I mean, the, full of lust and all kinds of, of problems and greed and, and envy happening right amongst believers. Those of us who call upon the name of Jesus... They were making themselves enemies of God. They were denying the, the power and presence of God's indwelling spirit. They were embracing all kinds of worldly, ill-gotten pleasures. And James, having reprimanded them, he tells them that God himself, that he opposes the proud. In other words, these people were so arrogant that they thought they could just get away with anything. And he says that God opposes. He opposes the proud, but he gives more grace. Grace to the humble. You know, there's, there's no way that we can live useful and happy lives while ignoring the counsel of God's word. And here were people who were trying to live as Christians, trying to live out their faith, trying to overcome the struggles of the world, but yet they were compromising in their faith. They were giving in to the temptations of the world. Matter of fact, they probably looked more like the world than they looked like the church. And so James is, he's addressing that. He's addressing them who were trying to navigate themselves or their lives through a pagan culture, you know, with those who were anti-Christ. And James is telling them not to get caught up and not to get trapped and not to become worldly, but he gives them a way. He gives them some solutions of how they could overcome, which is the title of my message, how they can overcome the temptations of the world. And I love how James starts out in verse 7 and 8. 
Point number one, if you're taking notes. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God himself will draw near to you. I love these words that he uses. He uses submit, resist, and draw near to God in the devil himself that he will flee. It's fascinating because for some, the word submission is a dirty word for some. Some people don't like to hear that word submission, you know, to submit. It's dirty because it has been misused and it has been abused by many. But submission done in the right way has great value. Without submission, think about it, where would our society be? If people didn't submit to the police officers or to the rule of the law or to the courts, there would be chaos. There would be confusion. You know, I think about the military. And for some of you who have been involved in the military, you probably understand this a lot better than I do. But the, the military depends on the chain of command. Each rank knows its place. Each submits to the officers above it. The private submits to the sergeant, who submits to the lieutenant, who submits to the captain, who submits to the major, who submits to the the colonel, who submits to the general. Did I get that right? Submission. Everyone submits. Matter of fact, Luke tells us that even Jesus himself, that he submitted. When he went down to Nazareth with his parents, he was obedient to them. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Though he was the son of the almighty God, He was submissive to imperfect parents. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Christ himself, although he was God in the flesh, that he only did what the Father did. He submitted to the will of the Father. Submission is to subject oneself or to come under the control of another. And it's fascinating because God does not require us to submit to him. He's not a tyrant that demands that you must submit, otherwise you are going to hell. Although that may be the case and the truth, that if we don't submit and follow underneath God's rule and reign, then guess what? There is a place reserved for those who don't obey God. But God is a loving God. That's why he wants us to submit. He's a a loving father. And as a loving father, he knows what's best for his children. You know, it's fascinating because whether we believe it or not, we are all submitting to something or we're all submitting to someone. It's either the world that we submit to and its philosophies and its teachings. It's either yourself because you think that you know best for yourself more than God or it's either the influence of the enemy who is called the devil. And if we don't submit to God, then guess what the Bible says? You and I, we are at odds. We are enemies with God. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. If we live according to our own standards, we can't submit to God. We are at odds with God. We are enemies with God. Living in the world, we are all enticed, every last one of us, 
Every one of us, we are all tempted by the schemes and the onslaughts of the devil to do our own thing or to follow his commands. Matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has come upon us except what is common to man. All of us, we all face temptations. None of us can escape it. None of us can avoid being tempted and tried by the enemy to be lured away by the schemes of the devil to follow his will or to make ourselves our own little small gods. I love what James says in James 4, 6. He says, but God himself, God resists the proud. God resists. I mean, when I think about resist, that he actually has his hands against you. He is pushing against you. God resists the proud, but he gives grace. He, He gives unmerited favor. He gives authority. He gives power. He gives forgiveness. He gives love. He gives joy to those who are humble. When we submit to God, he gives us the power and the ability to resist the enemy. When we became Christians, guess what? You and I, we automatically signed up into the army. It's called the resistance army to resist the onslaughts and the attacks of the evil one who comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. It's fascinating because when I think about Jesus, how did he resist the enemy? Although he was God, he had all power, but when Jesus was tried and tempted, he said, it is written. In other words, he quoted the word. It was the word of God that he used as a weapon against the enemy. And guess what? If you and I are believers in Christ, we have that same word. That same word. We have that same power. We have the Holy Spirit within us so that you and I can resist the temptations that the enemy would try to bring upon us. Matter of fact, the Bible says this. I love how Paul tells it. He says in Ephesians 6.13 that you and I have been given armor. Hello? Okay, okay, I'm just checking. He, he's given us armor. We have everything that we need to resist the enemy. To resist is to stand against. We have everything that we need to stand against the onslaughts of the enemy. Matter of fact, he says this, therefore having girded yourself with truth. It's truth. You know, truth always overcomes a lie. All you have to speak or do is speak the truth And guess what? The enemy has to flee. We speak the truth, but we speak it in love. He says, put on the belt of truth. Having put on also the breastplate of what? Of righteousness. You see, we overcome the enemy not because you guys are good, not because you guys are all perfect and all full of joy and, you know, you you have no problems. We don't overcome the enemy in ourselves, but we overcome the enemy because of the righteousness of Christ. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand in his righteousness. We stand in what he has done, not what we have done. But we also stand with the gospel, which is peace. We can stand when the enemy comes against us and tries to cause confusion and tries to make us discouraged. We can stand because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it brings peace in our lives. But not only that, when the devil was firing those fiery darts at you, you know, he's trying to hit you. He's trying to take you down. Guess what? We can stand with the shield of faith. 
Faith in him. Faith in what he has done. Faith that he'll never leave us, nor will he forsake us. And we have an offensive weapon called the sword. The spirit, which is the word of God. We keep on speaking truth. We keep on proclaiming the word. We keep on standing on the word. Nothing else. This is how we resist the enemy. But James says this. Not only has God given us uh, the armor that we need, but he also tells us that we can draw close to God. That when the enemy comes in like a flood, we can draw near to God. This is an invitation for each and every one of us. God is inviting you to draw near to him. It's an invitation to come to me. God is inviting you, but it's a promise that when you draw near to God, God also draws near to you. That's good news, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but do you want to experience God's grace in your life? Do you want that in your life? Then James says, submit to him. Do you want to be an overcomer in your life? Then James says, resist the devil and he will flee. Do you want to feel his presence in your life? Then draw near to him and guess what? God will also draw near to you. I love how Isaiah says it in verse 6, 7. He says, seek the Lord. In other words, seek him, go after him, find him, seek the Lord while he may be found. He says, seek him while he may be found. He says, call upon him. He is near. God is near. He is right here. He is an ever-present God right in this building. He is tabernacling right within our hearts, and he is walking up and down these aisles today. God is here. He says, seek him while he is near. But then he says, let the, the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion. What a merciful and great God we have that when we seek him, we will find him. When we draw close to him, he will draw close to us. And he won't give us what we deserve, but he will have compassion on each and every one of us. But James says this. He says, now that you've submitted and you've resisted and you've drawn close to God, some things will probably be exposed. In other words, he says, uh, cleanse your hands. He says, you sinners, Christians, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This doesn't sound very comforting, does it? I mean, it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, the joy of the Lord and, you know, hallelujah and praise God. This sounds like uh, James wants us to be sad that there's something within us that James is trying to get to. There's a, a hatred and a desire that you and I should have, that when we approach God, we should approach him with clean hands. You remember when the, the priests were to go into the temple, they would come to the, the laver, and they would have to wash their hands and make sure that they had purified themselves before they went into the Holy of Holies. You remember that? 
We are royal priesthood unto God. We are a holy nation. And how do we approach God? We approach him with clean hands. It's a picture of lifting up our hands, you know, and singing holy to the Lord. Clean hands symbolizes that we are showing God that our hands are clean, that our emotions and that our actions and that everything that we do, that it is pure, it is clean before God. Lifting up holy hands, God means, or that we are saying that our behavior, Lord, before you, all of our actions before you, they're clean. We're approaching you. We're lifting up our hands. We're saying that there's no wickedness, there's no evil. That my hands, my life, my actions, my behavior before you, God, that is pure. Matter of fact, the Bible says this in Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? Who? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? He says, he who has clean hands. In other words, your actions and your lifestyle is clean before God. And a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from God, our salvation. He calls them sinners, though, right after that. He says, you must have clean hands, but you're a sinner. What's he saying? He's calling them sinners because they were living one way in the world, but living another way before God. It's almost like they were coming to church, raising up their hands and singing, hallelujah, praise God. Oh, God, you are so pure. You are so good. But yet they would go out and they would live another way. Matter of fact, he calls them double-minded. He says, you, you double-minded people, they were double-souled, having divided heart. They wanted to love God and love the world at the same time. They wanted to love God and they also wanted to love sin. They had one foot in the world, and guess what? They had another foot in the church or the things of God. I don't know about you, but there are a whole lot of double-minded people that we encounter with on a daily basis. You know, I mean, even people who come to church, I'm not saying this church, but people who come to church, you know, people who are, who are double-minded. And it's fascinating, the life and the generation that we live today. Because technology has a tendency to expose so many different people. You know, it, it has a tendency to, to, to let people know who they really are. I mean, Sunday, Sunday Christians. But yet, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, and there's Snapchat. All these different instruments that just show a totally different side of that same person who we'd be worshiped with on Sunday morning. Double-minded. Matter of fact, James calls them double-minded because they would pray, but yet they would doubt God. They would even doubt God. Matter of fact, he says they are unstable in all of their ways. You know, you, you pray to God and you ask him for one thing, but yet you really don't believe it. James says they are confused, they are unstable, they are double-minded in all their ways. Matter of fact, Psalm 12, too, says that they speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. 
James 1, 6 and 8 says, even when they pray, they doubt God will even answer their prayer. Matthew 6, 24 says that no one can serve two masters. No one. Either, either you love this one and you despise or you hate this one. Either you love this lifestyle over here and you despise and you reject this one right here. Either you are hot or you're cold. You can't be lukewarm. And if you are, guess what? Out of his mouth. The Bible says this in Psalm 119.13. It says, I hate those who are double-minded. God hates a double-minded person. So James says, stop it. Stop being double-minded. Purify your hearts, he says. He says, you should be miserable. You should be weeping. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he saying? I mean, does James not want us to be happy? Does he not want us to have joy? I mean, what is he saying? He's saying that these things of being double-minded, of not being pure before God, of coming before his presence and lifting up your hands before him, this is no laughing matter. This is a serious thing. He says, you should be weeping. Why? Because of your sin. Because of your double-mindedness. You should be weeping because of the sins that are in your family or that are in your church, that are in your community. He says, you should be weeping over the sins that are in the world. And not only that, that you should be weeping over the effects that your actions have caused others. He says, we, should, we shouldn't be laughing, but we should be weeping over the effects that sin and the devastation that it causes in a person's life. So James says this. He says, you who think you have it all together, you who are laughing as if uh, sin is a playful matter, he says, humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. He says, you who are trying to exalt yourself, who are trying to be in charge of your own life, who think you have it all together, who are seeking after the world's ways uh, of elevating yourself, of trying to be someone when really you are no one. He says, humble yourself. It's fascinating because we all want to be exalted. We, we all seek after glorification. We all want recognition. We want to, to be in power and to be in charge and to be in control. But James says, you must humble yourself. To humble ourselves before the Lord is to regard ourselves as being absolutely nothing. You remember Tad spoke about the dust, about we were created from, from dust and to dust we will go back. Well, guess what? That's true. You are dust. From dust you were created and to dust you will go back. In other words, you're not all that. <laughs> you're not all that. So humble yourself. He says, humble yourself before the Lord because we're nothing and God is everything. He is everything. 
It is to deny ourselves and to claim the honor and the power and the glory and to ascribe all these things to who? To God and God alone. He says, humble yourself. That he's the creator. That he knows everything. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Humble yourself. Even when you think you're getting away with something in secret, guess what? (laughs) You're not because God knows it all and he has a way of exposing it. So you better humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. I love what Matthew 23, 12 says. For those who exalt themselves, those who are always saying, look at me, I'm a leader, I'm somebody, you know, I got it all together. Those who are exalting themselves will be humbled. So James says, humble yourself. Am I making sense this morning? (laughs) He tells him this in verse 4 of James, that he who was a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways, in other words. You know, I mean, gosh, let's be real. You can't be in the world and love the world and live according to the world's standards and serve God. Either that's your master or he's your master. He says, those who exalt themselves by their own cleverness, he says, they will be humbled. He says, God is the one who exalts. There's an honor that is greater than any of us can ever imagine or think when God himself honors us, when God himself lifts us up, when God himself takes us and he elevates us to a platform that you and I can never think or imagine. He says, humble yourself before God and stop trying to lift yourself up to be someone important, but let God lift you up. Let God raise you up. Let God make you the person that he desires you to be. But you must humble yourself. I love what Isaiah 61.3 says. It says, he will give unto them beauty for ashes. God will build us up. He will lift us up. He will give us Beauty for all the sorrows and for all the hardships and all the difficulties that we have gone through if we just learn how to humble ourselves. He says that he will give us the oil of joy. (laughs) The oil of joy. That God will give us joy when we're sad, when we're depressed, when all hell is breaking loose against us. That God will give us joy if we just humble ourselves during our time of mourning. He will put on a garment of praise, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When you feel like you just can't go on any further, God supernaturally, he gives you a garment of praise to where you don't see your problem as a problem, but you see your problem as an opportunity to praise God. He will give you a garment of praise. When you feel like the weight is just too much for you to carry, he will give you a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's good news, isn't it? 
that we might be called trees of righteousness. Trees planted. I think of those big old uh, oak trees or redwood trees that are planted in the ground. Trees that, that simply cannot be moved. Or those baobab trees in Africa that are so huge that they just cannot be removed. That we are planted Firmly rooted and established in him. Overflowing, the Bible says, with joy. That's how God will lift us up. He will lift us up as trees of righteousness. That's good news. Because some of us know where we've come from in the hardships and the struggles that we've had to go through. But thank God that when we humbled ourselves before him, guess what? He lifted us up and he made us trees of righteousness. And then one day, one day when this is all said and it's all over, when we take or leave this place, we go home, He's going to glorify us. We're going to be in heaven with him forever and ever. If we just learn how to humble ourselves, God himself is the one who's doing it so that man cannot boast or receive any credit or any glory. All the glory and all the honor goes to God. He's the one who will lift you up. It's simple. Humble yourself. So when we begin each day, let us go first to, to God in our quiet time. Let us go to him and let's learn how to submit ourselves to him. Let's learn how to fall underneath his rule and his reign. And let's stop trying to be in charge or in control because he knows far better than we do how to lead and how to govern our lives. Let us say no to the temptations of the enemy the enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And let us draw near to God through times of prayer, through times of worship, through times of reading his word, through times of fellowship with other Christians. Let us draw near to God. Let's not push him away, but let us come close to him. And guess what? He promises that he will draw near to each and every one of us but we got to humble ourselves before him and allow him to lift us up you agree with that yeah. let's pray